Hi, good morning. My name is Cor. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 2, 8 and 9, and 15 through 17. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit, and he also grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Katie. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. The actions that are produced by selfish motives are obvious, since they include sexual immorality, moral corruption, doing whatever feels good, idolatry, drug use and casting spells, hate, fighting, obsession, losing your temper, competitive opposition, conflict, selfishness, group rivalry, jealousy, drunkenness, partying, and other things like that. I warn you, as I have already warned you, that those who do these kinds of things won't inherit God's kingdom. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against things like this. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nicole Jillin. Thank you for standing for the gospel found in Luke 5, 27 through 30, and 33 through 35. Afterward, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. Jesus said to him, follow me. Levi got up, left everything behind, and followed him. Then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus at his home. A large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with him. The Pharisees and their legal experts grumbled against his disciples. They said, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> Some people said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and pray frequently. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but your disciples are always eating and drinking. Jesus replied, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? The days will come when the groom will be taken from them, and then they'll fast. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we come today as your kids, your sons and your daughters gathered together by your spirit as a family in your presence. And we have come that we might encounter you and hear from you and receive from you all that we need for our lives. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your scriptures, that you would open our ears to hear, you'd open our minds to understand, and most importantly, you'd get to those places in our hearts where we so desperately need to hear your whisper, your whisper of love and kindness and care and healing and freedom to us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning, New Life Downtown. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here. Well, if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for coming. If you're watching online, uh, we hope sometime to see you here in person. This Sunday is the last Sunday in our sermon series that we've been going through this summer called Whole Life, a series on integrated spirituality. 
And the inspiration for this series comes from something that's called a rule of life, which is a historic tool that really features prominently in our emotionally healthy discipleship courses. What the rule of life does is it asks us to sort of prayerfully discern how it is that we can sort of gather together a constellation of practices that will help us orient ourselves to the love of God. That in every area of our life that we might be able to see it as a way to both receive God's love and to share or show God's love in that area. In the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship courses, it's designed kind of in four quadrants where we think about how do we experience the love of God through prayer and scripture. And so the first two weeks of our sermon, we were ta- of the series, we were talking about that. And then another quadrant is work. So we spent two weeks sort of talking about how is it that we as Christians approach work through the lens of the love of God. And then we spent three weeks talking about the, other, the next sort of part of the quadrant, which is relationships. So we had a week talking about marriage, a week talking about singleness. Last week we talked about friendship. And how is it in those places, again, that we give and receive the love of God? Well, today we're moving into this final quadrant, which is the quadrant of rest and play, and talking about how is it in those areas, again, do we orient ourselves to God and to His love in our lives? Over the past several years, we've given a number of sermons or talks or uh, other things kind of related to the the, the importance of rest and the practice of Sabbath. And so what I thought I would try to do today is talk about play. And how is it that Christians think about this? So all the Enneagram 7s in the room, this is my gift to you. Uh, They're going to think through this thing that you're like, yes, finally, validation in church uh, for what I just so long to do and teach others how to do all the time. So, but play might seem like kind of a strange thing to talk about at church. On one hand, it may just seem like, well, that's just not very serious and maybe not very spiritual to talk about. Like, maybe I should have gone to a different church this morning where they'll handle something, you know, weightier than this. Or maybe, on the other hand, you're like, well, wait, I didn't think Christians played. I I thought this was something Christians were against. There's an old joke that goes around sometimes. It says, why are Christians so opposed to premarital sex? Because it might lead to dancing. Let that sink in there for a second for you. <laughs> There's a sense where Christians have been known sometimes as those who are, are like opposed to dancing and card playing and movie watching and rock and roll. And that these are the things that the church sort of stands against in the world. Uh, on the other hand, it may even seem sort of strange because it doesn't seem like that Christianly in the sense like, well, doesn't everybody play? Like... That's not really a distinctive Christian sort of activity or practice, but I would say that play like rest and work are things that, yes, all of us do, but there are certain ways that we can approach them in a distinctively Christian way. And so what I hope to do today is to help us sort of think theologically about what do we believe about play, and then how does that shape how we approach it? Like what we do when we have time for leisure and recreation. Does that sound good? All right, great. So here's the first thought for you this morning is this, is that play actually is the means by which we delight in the goodness of God's creation. 
That play is us delighting in the goodness of God's creation. In our Old Testament reading today from Genesis 2, we're reading about God creating a garden called Eden. Well, the word Eden in Hebrew actually means pleasure or delight or luxury. That God creates a place of pleasure, a place of delight, a place of luxury, and sets humanity within it. And as we go throughout the chapter, seeing how this place is described, we see that there is an abundance of trees. And these trees produce beautiful and tasty fruits. And in addition to that, God comes and just walks with people in the cool of the day. And we find that humans with these trees are allowed to freely eat from all of them but one. All of the language suggests that Eden was created for humanity's enjoyment. And God created something for us to enjoy and to delight in. One of my professors in seminary put it this way. He says, in the garden, there is bounty beyond necessity, beauty beyond utility, and delight beyond survival. In other words, there's more food and more trees and more variety than we possibly need. That there's just extravagance here. And there's splendor that seems to serve no purpose. Things that are created as beautiful to behold that are just simply there so that we can look at them and say, whoa, that is amazing. And there are these unnecessary luxuries, things that simply seem to be designed to just bring people joy. There are breathtaking sights in this world, like the maroon bells, just going up there and beholding these places. There are the alluring sounds of waterfalls and babbling brooks and camping next to them and just listening to those sounds. And there's the exquisite tastes of things like limes and honey, tastes that just explode in our mouths. And not only that, but he made us, made humans with the ability to run and to dance and to climb and to hike and to ski and to fly fish and to swim and to sing. Things that simply are beyond just what we need to do to do work, but things that are able to do for us to enjoy. And not only that, but he put inside of us the desire to create things for other people to enjoy. The desire to create music and art so that other people might listen to it and be moved. The desire to come up with the idea of a donut. <laughs> Just so breakfast could be a little bit better in the mornings. Or there's things like spike ball and stand-up comedy that just serve no purpose other than for us to laugh and enjoy. And all that, God gave us vivid imaginations and the ability to, to sort of experience profound pleasure and what my wife calls uncontrollable laughter. The kind of laughter that you just can't stop and it just keeps going on until you're crying because you're laughing so hard. Like, we were made to experience these kinds of things. And so it's through play, it's through recreation, it's through leisure that we actually embrace what God made and he called good. 
It's through play that we do that. Not only that, this play delight in the goodness of God's creation, but play actually imitates God's joyful nature. What do you think of when you think of God? When you think of God's character, you think of God's nature, or you think about what God does, what are the pictures or the images or the verbs come, that come to mind? I think for a lot of us, we might think of a God as a God who creates, that this is what God does, or God is a God who rules, or God is a God who judges, or God is a God who saves. And all of those things are true. These are all part of who God is. But how often do we think of God as a God who plays, as a God who delights, as a God who takes joy in what he's made? When we're looking to kind of get a picture of what God is like, we look to Jesus. Jesus, the scriptures say, is the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God is like, then we're called to behold Jesus and to see in Jesus the, what God is actually like, God becoming flesh and living among us. And when we think about Jesus' life, Jesus is constantly attending festivals and celebrations. Like he's just going from one party to another, right? Jesus is at so many parties that the religious leaders of his day refer to him as a glutton and a drunk. Probably because the guy's having no fun. He's stoic and serious all the time. No, there's so much joy coming up out of Jesus that they're like, there's no other explanation for this that he must have had too much to drink. They're going to understand like he is filled with this kind of joy. Not only that, but Jesus is the person who changes water to wine. And when the disciples try to keep children from him, he's like, no, 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 I want the kids close. Why? Because kids are fun. <laughs> kids play. Kids know how to enjoy life. And then he looks at these kids, he looks at his disciples, and he says, I wish you were more like them. Right? So this is what childlike faith looks like. This is what I have for you. And even when he's talking about the kingdom of God, Jesus' go-to example is a party. It's a festival. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a father who's putting on a wedding banquet for his son or a father whose son has come back and he says, kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. That this is what we see in Jesus, the joyful nature of God. Play reminds us of that. In addition, play actually anticipates God's new creation. It helps us sort of look forward to what's to come. When the scriptures are talking about that new heaven and new earth reality that's pressing in and will sometime be fully realized here when Jesus comes back, it talks a lot about what's not going to be there. I mean, no more sickness, no more crying, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. But it also talks a lot about what will be there singing and dancing and eating and rejoicing forever. The kingdom is this place where there's play. Zechariah even puts it this way in his prophecy as he's getting this picture of the new heavens, new earth, particularly the new Jerusalem. He says it this way. He says that city will be full of boys and girls playing in its plazas. That this is a picture of the world to come, is the streets, the plazas, filled with children playing, probably baseball. <laughs> my own personal sort of, that's my theological opinion, not, you know, reflected anywhere else in Scripture. 
But oftentimes we think of play as these sort of like mere moments of relief, right? It's like, ah, it's just a relief. It's just, you know, some sort of uh, taking the air out of all the pressure. Or sometimes we think of play as an escape to something that's not real, as sort of a, a place into the unreal, sort of an escape into unreality. But I think play for the Christian actually ushers us into ultimate reality. It pulls us into the future that it's going to be ours someday. It foreshadows what our life is going to look like in the age to come. It sort of reminds us that there's going to be a day and a time when Jesus comes back and we will be filled with full and complete joy. And that all of our life will be permeated by play. That we'll be enjoying God, enjoying one another, enjoying the redeemed creation and enjoying whatever work he gives us to do in the middle of it. That all of it will be sort of charged with a sense of joyful play forever. That we will experience uncontrollable laughter for all eternity. Delighting in God. This is what play is. It's anticipating that. But I think play also serves a really profound purpose here in the present. That I think in the present, play can actually be an act of prophetic defiance. You think about our world today, we don't typically think about it as a place that's very playful. That whether you're watching the news on TV or reading them online or getting updates on your smartphone, that most of the things that we're sort of encountering during the course of the day are account after account after account of pain and suffering whether it's another sort of reports of a shooting in our city or in our world, whether it's sort of in your workplace that you're looking into the face of kids who are experiencing global hunger and global poverty, whether in your workplace you're in an ER room and you're dealing with the kinds of things that are happening there or you're a counselor who's talking with somebody who's processing through the abuse and neglect and abandonment that they felt from a parent or whether you're encountering your neighbor who's going through the loss of a loved one, or maybe you yourself experience your own pain, your own diseases, your own sort of places of brokenness and fear and pain and suffering, and you see it all around and we experience it in here, in the middle of all of that, play seems at best irreverent. Seems kind of distasteful, right? At times, it might even seem wrong or evil. It's like, what? How can we play in the midst of all of these things? How, like, this, this isn't a time for play. This isn't a time for laughter. This isn't a time for games. This is a time for something else. And yes, it is a time for grief. It is a time for mourning. It's a time for lament. It's a time for intercession. It is a time for work. But I think for the Christian, it can also be the time for something else for play. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is he's sitting in Nazi prison and he's thinking about the evil that he encounters in the world, encountering racism and nationalism and the kinds of supremacy that even we're dealing with in our world today, seeing those things bubbling back up and rearing their ugly evil head. As he's reflecting on this and having given up and sacrificed and put his life on the line in order to resist this evil in the world, he's there in prison and he writes this. He says, who is there, for instance, in our times who can devote himself or herself with an easy mind to music, to friendship, 
the games or to happiness. Like, who can do this in the middle of this? And he goes, surely not the ethical person, but only the Christian. It's only the Christian that can do that. Why? How is it in the midst of those things can Christians play? Can Christians do that? It's because for us, we know that play is not an act of ignorance. It's not of just saying, you know, pretending that there's not evil in the world. And it's not an act of avoidance saying, no, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to stay away and isolate myself from all these things, and I'm just going to create my own little bubble over here. But instead, for us, it is an act of defiance. Because in the presence of evil, we play as a prophetic act, saying evil and death and disease and sickness, you will not win at the end of the day. But instead, we know that there is a day coming when all sickness, all disease, all evil, all pain, all suffering, all death will be smashed. That it will all be put away and we will all play forever. And so we play now to say in the face of evil, you don't win. You're not going to steal joy forever and we're not even going to let you steal it today. We're not going to ignore you and we're not going to avoid you, but we're going to play right in your face. While we pray, and while we work, and while we serve, and while we sacrifice, and while we give, and while we do all the other things that we know to do, we're also going to laugh in the face of evil. We're going to laugh, and we're going to play, because we know who wins the day. We know where this story is headed. Probably the place that we see that the most is in sports. It's maybe an analogy that can help us. And I know for many of you, you're like, oh, no, not another sports analogy from Glenn and Jason, but here it is. For many, like when we think about sports, one of the things that we want to see in our favorite team and our favorite players is we want to see them play through pain, right? If somebody gets hurt and, you know, they've kind of tweaked something and they're, you know, taking three or four days off, we're like, oh, come on, like, get out there, play. How much money are we paying you? Like, you can do this. I don't care if you've got a blister on your pitching hand. Go out there and throw the ball. There's something about that we're like, ugh. And so when we find people who play through the pain were like, yes, they become folk heroes, legends. For baseball fans, it's Kurt Schilling and the bloody sock. You know, the guy's foot's bleeding and he won't come off the mound. It's like, I'm going to keep pitching. For basketball fans, it's Jordan the flu game. It's like, here he is, the guy's got the flu, you can imagine. And he goes out and he plays and he carries his team to a victory. Or for Olympic fans, it's that moment when Carrie Strug with her deeply sprained ankle goes and she hits that landing. And we're like, yes! Like, oh, they're playing through the pain. That's what we do as well. We play through the pain and suffering in the world as an act of declaring our trust in God and our confidence in his future. We don't ignore those things, but we play as a declaration that we know that death has been swallowed up in victory and it has lost its sting, that it does not win. So we anticipate the future and we play in the present to declare and to remind all the evil in the world, you're not going to win. You cannot take our joy because it doesn't come from our circumstances. It comes from the Holy Spirit's work inside of us and our confidence in God's good future for his people and his creation. In addition, play also relativizes our over-seriousness. This is a quote from Jürgen Moltmann, who actually wrote a theology of play, a book several years ago. 
But in general, I would say it's safe to say that for all of us at some point or every day, uh, we have an elevated view of ourselves. We have a high view of ourselves and our work. And if we're not careful, we can become easily inflated with our own self-importance. Well, if I don't do this, if I don't take care of this, if I'm not present, if I'm not, if I'm not, if I, if I don't do that, nobody will. I'm the only person that can take care of this. And, and some of that may be true. There may not be anybody else to change that diaper. Like it, it may be all on you. But there's a sense that as we go about life that we can begin to think that everything depends on us. And we can start to develop a kind of over-seriousness about life and ourselves. It doesn't mean that there's not serious things in life. There are serious things. There are serious things for us to do. There are serious things for us to pray about, serious things for us to talk about. There's all of those things. But we can get to this place of over-seriousness. And I think it can happen especially in the church. When we think about our image of the most mature, the most godly uh, person in sometimes in Christian communities, we think of them as almost unemotional, as sort of deep and serious and stoic. And sometimes we think about them as workaholics, people that are giving everything all the time for everyone and just giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. And we're like, yes, but there's a, a, like, a, like a somberness to them. And we think, ah, that's what the Christian life looks like. And yet when Paul was talking about the fruits of the Spirit, he says there is love and joy. Why is it that we don't think that the most mature Christians among us are the most joyful? The most filled with the kind of joy that Jesus embodied and went out in the world. The kind of joy that's just, you know, popping up at parties and telling people about Jesus. The kind of joy that's infectious. It says, ah, I want to be around that. I want to be a Christian because it just seems like so much fun. When's the last time we heard that? Probably not very often. But we can become overly serious about this. We don't typically sort of move in this direction, but Jesus encouraged us to, to embody a childlike faith. And there's nothing more childlike than play. Play teaches us humility. It dispels the lie that our work is the most important thing in the world. It dispels that myth that everything is dependent upon us. That's why I love Sunday afternoons and evenings. I love preaching. I love the whole preparing for a sermon and preaching and all the prayer and attention and study and all those things that go into it. But on Sunday afternoons, I go home and I rest and I play. So I remember, like, no matter how I felt about the sermon or how anybody else felt about the sermon, it's God's work. And he's going to do with it whatever he's going to do with it. And I just need to stop. So I go home and I take a nap and I watch baseball if it's on or I play board games with my kids or my kids are snuggled up around me. And as the night goes on, we order pizza and we watch Little House on the Prairie. So good. Except the pastor, whose theology is terrible. <laughs> Constantly like, don't listen to that guy. Um, and then when the kids go to bed, we break out the ice cream and we watch Survivor. Because I'm 95 on the inside. It's just and delighting that and remembering like, it, this is God's gift to us is to enjoy life and the things that he has for us in the world as a way of sort of relativizing that. So with all of those things in mind, I think we can say that play can be a profoundly Christian practice. 
But at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that not all play is created equal. In that the New Testament reading from today in Galatians, Paul's warning about all kinds of actions that can be produced by selfishness. And the list includes doing whatever feels good, drug use, fighting, obsession, losing your temper, competitive opposition, drunkenness, and more, which actually sounds quite a lot like a Broncos game. <laughs> at least the one that I was at, it was a, probably because it was a Raiders game, and there was just lots of fighting. Like the whole, you know, there's this sense that sometimes those kinds of things are altogether too often associated with play. I think this is why Christians have sometimes been the ones that are like pushing against play, is because we see inside of play something dangerous, that it can become sort of an excuse for fighting and competition and drunkenness and sexual immorality and all those kind of things, that we can sort of use this as a license to move into things that are actually sinful and harmful. Brian Egger put it this way. He says, play can be distorted, can move beyond what God intends it to, just like work and rest and everything else can. It can be distorted. That's not a reason to abandon it, but to just be wise about it. So it can be distorted and sinful when it involves greed, violence, unhealthy competitiveness, selfishness, sexual immorality, the denigration of others, or when it is excessively costly, wasteful of time, or obsessive. In other words, play can be distorted and sinful when it starts to come at the expense of everything else in our lives. When it starts to come at the expense of our faithfulness to worship, comes at the expense of our faithfulness to our relationships in the world, comes at the expense of the work that God has given us to do. So what play is meant to do, it's meant to generate joy that spills over into all of those areas, that actually helps inform and shape and even buoy those areas in our lives. And so it's to help us to approach our worship and our work and our relationships out of the overflow and the abundance of God's joy inside of us as we've kind of tapped into that by delighting in Him and all that He's made. It's not supposed to actually cost us those things and negatively impact them. When we were talking about work, we pulled on some of the resources from a woman named Dorothy Sayers who wrote an article called Why Work? And she said in the article that the only Christian work is good work well done. Maybe we can say the same thing about play. That the only Christian play is good play well played. Things that are actually the kind of play that reflect God's character, that attest to the goodness of His creation, that point to his coming kingdom, that actually fill us with joy that spills into, empowers and strengthens us in all of the other areas, that's the kind of play that we should go really hard at. We should play that play really well. Dive into it, enjoy it, embrace it for the gift that it is, and see how it spills over and helps us in those other areas. And last thing here about play is I think play enacts our reliance on God's grace. It actually embodies it in some way. One of the great ironies of Christian history is that the Protestant Reformation, which gave us this sort of emphasis on grace, which stressed this sense of that we're saved by grace, not by works, so that no one could boast, and sort of highlighted that aspect of the Scriptures also gave us the Protestant work ethic. It didn't give us a play ethic. 
It sort of said, yes, everything, there's salvation is by grace, and then went in this other sort of place, and in, in, its, in its extreme forms, said the only serious and important and spiritual thing to do in the world is to work. And sort of infused us with this sense that there is always more work to be done, and that there, we cannot sort of play or rest until all the work is done. But the truth is, the work is never done. <laughs> It never ends. It never ends. There will be another email in 30 seconds. It will keep coming. But we end up with this attitude that we find reflected in Dr. Seuss's brilliant work, The Cat in the Hat Came Back. Anybody read it? Where he says this. He says, this was no time for play. This was no time for fun. This was no time for games. There's work to be done. How often do we carry that around with us? That sort of sense of we just have to keep working. And I wonder how much of that comes out of this sense that we feel the need to justify ourselves by what we do. That we sort of want to prove our value, prove our worth, prove our significance, prove our value or our esteem or our worth, some sort of thing inside of it that says the way that we're going to do that is by working by climbing the corporate ladder, by reaching this goal, by doing this thing. And work is good. We had two sermons on it. You can go back and re-listen to those. I'm not downplaying work, but sometimes our work can come out of a very broken place that says, oh, we've got to do all of this for ourselves. And what play does, like rest, play reminds us that we're not God, that we're not in control, that we don't sustain the world or save it, nor do we sustain or save our own lives. We are not God. In addition, we're not slaves or machines. That we're not sort of uh, caught in this place where our value, our worth, or our significance is determined by what we do or by what we produce. But we have great value beyond our vocation. Great value beyond our work. This is the great reminder that Sarah gave us last week that Jesus doesn't just call us his servants, but he calls us his friends. And when the scriptures talk about us, they refer to us as the friends of God and the children of God. And what do friends do with one another? They play. They recreate. They enjoy time together. And what do parents do with their kids, especially in those little moments? is that they do everything they possibly can to get that little baby to look them in the face and smile and laugh. They play. They grab every squeaky, annoying little toy and rattle and book and chew thing and make the strangest, most ridiculous faces and noises that could possibly ever be made for the sheer delights in making a child laugh. What if that's how God looks at you? What if he wants to hold you the same way and look you in the eye and say, let's laugh together. Let's play together. I love you. You are my friend. You are my son. You are my daughter. I just want to enjoy you. Yes, there'll be work to do. We're going to get to that. But can we stop for a moment? Can you rest in my presence? Can you play? Can you enjoy the gift of life and grace that I've given you? And can we laugh 
and delight in one another. I think that's one of the reasons why when Jesus left and he gave us something to do together as a remembrance of him, he gave us a meal. Didn't give us, you know, like some form we have to fill out or some, you know, sort of project that we have to complete. He gave us a meal and said, hey, would you come every week to a table? Would you sit with me? Would we enjoy one another's presence? You can be with me and I can be with you. We can sing and laugh and dance and talk and play together. We can come into one another's presence as a way of delighting and anticipating what it is to come.